What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. The state of Louisiana is sending children to Angola Prison, one of the most notoriously violent and brutal prisons in the nation, and they are torturing them. We are joined this morning by Elizabeth Wild Greenberg, senior reporter for The Appeal, a worker-led nonprofit news organization. Good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning, Kat. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks so much for joining. Elizabeth, for my listeners who don't know or understand, even though, I mean, I, I know KPFA folks and we've talked about Angola a lot on this show, but paint a picture of Angola prison and a little bit of its violent history. Yeah, sure. Um, so Angola, of course, is the um, maximum security prison in Louisiana. It's likely one of the most notorious prisons um, in the country. Um, it's really sort of a, a symbol um, in our punishment system of torture, of racism, of hopelessness. Um, it houses Louisiana's death row unit unit and execution chamber. Um, and this is the place where the Office of Juvenile Justice, which is separate from the Louisiana Department of Corrections, which handles um, adults who are incarcerated in the legal system in Louisiana, the Office of Juvenile Justice in Louisiana, which is supposed to be focused on rehabilitation and care, not punishment um, of the kids that are in their care. Um, OJJ uh, proposed and then went forward with the plan to send kids uh, under their custody, in their custody, to Angola last year. Elizabeth, actually, that's where I wanted to start, right? I want to provide history because the context is important, and this is a follow-up story. We had you on when you first uh, broke the story in the appeal. What was the justification by the state for sending children um, to Angola is is the first right question. part of that question. The second is there was a fight that that happened at at that time um, with advocates and, you know, the ACLU and others saying that this was a bad idea. What did the court promise was going to happen when they sent children to the former death row unit of Angola prison? I'm so disgusted. Yes, absolutely, Kat. Um, Those are both great questions. And I just want to kind of um, make sure that I note that the local press has been really on this story from the very beginning um, and, and their coverage really informed a lot of my coverage. And I'm very much, um, you know, indebted to the reporters in Louisiana who have just stayed on top of this story um, from the get go and helped really turn it into the, the national story that it's, that it's become um, in terms of the justifications. That's a great, that's a great question. There were a series of, you know, I guess you could say sort of high-profile scandals that occurred last summer where kids in the facilities had escaped um, and there was some violence in the facilities. And really, instead of looking at those um, those incidents as, you know, uh, indicating that there's something, you know, fundamentally broken about this juvenile justice system, kids are not receiving the care they need, um, you know, locking up kids in, in a secure facility run by OJJ. This is not working. This is not best practices. You know, instead of looking at the system as the failure, they looked at the kids and they looked at the kids as the problem and said, well, these kids cannot be safely 
detained in OJJs, what they call secure care facilities. It's the, the highest level of security for, for a child in their custody. And they need more security. They need more supervision. And so what we're going to do is send them to Angola, to the former death row unit at Angola. And we're going to outfit this and to be a unit for children. Um, there was a huge fight about this um, that, that, like I said, was covered um, extensively by the local press, um, by local reporters. Um, you had a lot of community groups. Um, you had the National ACLU come in, um, several law firms, as well as nationally, um, a member, uh, official with the Department of Justice um, who uh, is in their juvenile justice program and correctional leaders from all over the country, current and former, spoke out and said, this is a terrible idea. This is going to destroy these kids. This is absolutely against everything we know works for kids. Um, you know, please don't do this. And unfortunately, the judge that heard the case said, while this will likely cause psychological harm and trauma to the kids that are transferred, the transfers can occur anyway. I want to get into what the children are actually dealing with, but I'm going to um, invert the order I was going to ask my questions. Because as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, when I was a little bit younger, uh, a couple decades ago, when I first moved to Los Angeles, I worked with an amazing organization there called the Unusual Suspects that um, sent actors in to work with children in juvenile hall. Um, and there were several children there that were bracing themselves. I mean, 14, 15 years old. I'm thinking of one young boy in particular who, who wasn't any bigger than a twig that they were getting ready to send to San Quentin. And the weight of the emotional weight of that reality for those children was palpable to the point where, you know, 20 plus years later, it still sits with me. Talk about that what the children have said about the weight of being sent to Angola, two of the young people that you uh, talk about in your article that are going by aliases, um, but particularly I'm talking about da uh, David D., um, who's since been transferred out of the facility, um, the terror that he lives with every single day that he could be sent back. Yes, absolutely. This is something that I heard from advocates before the transfers occurred, and it's something that is um, articulated by the two um, by the two young people who gave um, who really quite courageously gave state written statements to the court um, detailing the um, the abuse um, and and the torment uh, that they've experienced while at Angola. Um, so before the transfers even occurred, when this fight was happening, what advocates told me was that kids were really scared. Kids and their parents were scared. They didn't know. Um, if they would be transferred, they didn't know when it would happen. Um, and one uh, one child actually wrote to the court before the transfers occurred, you know, that he would see kids break down in tears um, at the thought of being transferred. Um, he also expressed that sometimes um, they will be told by, you know, guards at the juvenile detention facilities, oh, you won't be transferred because you're you're one of the good ones. And I just want to correct myself. I, I can't recall if it was he who said that or, or one of the advocates, um, but the guards were trying to reassure some kids because there was so much terror about who would be 
sent to Angola. Since the transfers occurred, um, eight kids were sent in October. That was the first group of kids. There are now five kids at Angola. Um, one of the children said in, a, in his statement to the court that even if he's transferred out, um, he is still terrified that he's going to be sent back. Um, kids can be sent back for a, a variety of behaviors, including, you know, possessing marijuana. Elizabeth Wall-Greenberg, let's talk about some of the things that the the two lead, uh, I guess they're lead plaintiffs. Is that accurate description in the ACLU lawsuit? Um, these young people have said uh, happened to them inside of Angola uh, prison in this last year. Yeah. So, yeah, no, thank, thank you for that, for that question. Um, Edward and Daniel are asking to join the suit. It's, it's one of the many um, issues before the judge um, that they have to rule on and that the attorneys are awaiting a ruling on. So Edward and Daniel really give us our first glimpse into what is happening at Angola. Um, Edward is 17 years old, um, according to his uh, statement um, provided to the court. He has been diagnosed with PTSD um, and bipolar disorder and ADHD. Um, and what he, uh, what he states is, is really, truly horrific. He talks about um, being subjected to collective punishment, that in one unit, if a child, quote unquote, acted up, everyone would lose recreation time and be locked in their cells instead. And of course we have to remember, right, this is a former death row unit. So these are sort of the typical nightmarish cells, floor to ceiling, um, you know, floor to ceiling bars um, and, and no view of, of the outside. Each cell is, is a single occupancy cell. So these kids are in there alone. Um, he also said, and this, this really got to me because I think we all know how food is used as punishment and as a way to torture people who are incarcerated. Um, and the other thing he said is that the food is, is absolutely disgusting um, and that they often find hair in their food. And when one child found a hair in his food, he, he threw it down on the ground. And the next day, his punishment was that he was served a food loaf. So his food had been um, blended together and fried and served to him, um, which is is just horrific. Um, you know, Edward also talked about the emotional impact of being housed in the unit, that his nightmares related to his trauma history had worsened since he arrived. Um, he thinks that he sees shadows going past um, at night. The, the other child um, who's um, just 15, uh, his alias in, in the suit is Daniel. He wrote or he said a lot about seeing um, a lot of quite abusive um, behavior from guards and uh, also talks about this really extensive isolation that he and others um, have been subjected to. He said that um, kids would be held in their cells for days at a time, for three or four days at a time, only allowed to leave to shower. Um, he every day they're locked in their cells starting at 5 p.m. until about 6:45 a.m. And remember, these are very young people we're talking about, um, and so we're just we're talking about young people not getting any kind of movement and being just subjected to isolation that we know um, 
is destructive and, and harmful. He also said that when the power often goes out when it rains, and when that happens, the kids are not allowed to attend school, which is really two classrooms. My understanding from their statement seems to be two classrooms um, in the unit. And on those days, they're locked in their cells except for two meals, um, lunch and dinner. Um, The other thing he said was that when it is uh, cold out, they don't have hot, hot water and they can't shower. I just want to take a minute and just say, right, these are children. These are children that are going to be adults. <laughs> these are children that are going to be engaging in our communities. And these are children that are likely going to remain entangled in the criminal legal system into adulthood and then be blamed <laughs> um, for however they react to this com- compounding of their trauma. Uh, Elizabeth, I have a question about the guards. Are these special mm. guards for the kids or are these the same guards that are torturing the adult population of Angola prison? That's a, that's a great point. Um, and that's a, that's a great question. Um, so from the kids statements, it looks like the guards are both department of correction guards. So like you said, those are the people that we have in the adult prison as well as the office of juvenile justice guards. Um, the, uh, Daniel actually wrote about that. He, he detailed a time that, um, a child hit, hit a guard and he wrote, and he said, excuse me, that department of corrections and juvenile justice officers came in the room and that the department of correction guards, um, were the ones who grabbed and twisted his arm. Um, I should say after that incident, um, Daniel says he and the other kids who were present um, at the time were then locked in their cells alone um, for at least three days, only permitted to leave to shower. Um, and yes, absolutely. You know, to your point, right, what what the the guards, what the state of Louisiana is doing to these kids is is tormenting them, is adding trauma on top of on top of trauma um, is, is simply punishing them. And it, and you're exactly right. It's, it's, you know, this is, these are devastating and disgusting and inhumane conditions. And then, you know, if, if the children then respond to trauma and all of the complicated ways that people respond to trauma, um, you know, we know how our system works and it just then further punishes them um, for the harm that the system caused in the first place. So it's been a year. The ACLU has said enough is enough. Lawsuit is demanding an end to the program, right? That that the young people, um, I mean, they're just going to return to another cage. But um, where is it in the legal process? Does it look like the court system may be moving? Is public pressure working? What's happening? That Those are all great questions. And it's a, honestly, it's a question I thought a lot about when I was reporting the story because we all know how slow our courts move. And this is a, a very urgent crisis, right? Kids are being harmed right now. If a child is in that unit, that child is being harmed. Um, and our courts are not really, um, are not really built to respond to, um, these, you know, these sort of urgent crises. Um, certainly this court does not seem in my opinion to be responding to the, uh, responding with the urgency, um, that is necessary. Um, so 
when I spoke with the ACLU, they said that they are pretty much waiting on a series of decisions from the court. Um, they're actually, there's a, um, the, the state is attempting to have the, the suit dismissed. Um, they have not even gone to discovery. So the, the attorneys, there's, there's a lot that they don't know. Um, you know, I can say for myself, I tried to find the, um, what the, the ages and the race is of the children who are held there and the public records request um, in response to that public records request, I was told we have no records responsive to that request. And then the spokesperson for the juvenile justice agency said they can't release any information that could identify the children, which of course is absolutely absurd. Um, you know, what we do know is that black children are horribly overrepresented in the juvenile justice system. And of course that's a point that can't be lost, right? We don't know that all of the kids at Angola are black, but what we do know is that at least two of them are from their, what the attorneys um, told me who met with them. And we know that over 80% as of August, over 80% of the kids who are locked up um, by OJJ, by the juvenile justice agency are black. I'm just going to leave it here. Uh, I'm going to read something from your article, if that's all right with you, Elizabeth Wall-Grunberg, Gina oh, Womack, uh, Executive Director of Family and Friends of Louisiana and Car Louisiana's Incarcerated Children, said in a written statement that the significance of housing children of color at Angola should not be lost on the public. Quote, the fact that black children are being locked in the fact that black children are being locked in cages on a former plantation for enslaved Africans is already an immeasurable offense. But to also learn that they are being held in solitary confinement without necessary services, education, or even recreation is unconscionable. End quote. Elizabeth Wild Greenberg, I want to thank you for the amazing coverage you do at The Appeal. We will continue to follow this story and have you back on soon. Thank you so much, Kat. I really appreciate all your work, and it's an, always an honor to be on. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Rask and the Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>